book of Ezra, um, we're going to spend our time this morning in chapter 2. It's, I intended to preach chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, but for time reasons, last Sunday we had to stop after chapter 1. The title of the message last Sunday was, God is in Control. So this week it's real original, God is in Control, part 2, as we continue, um, but As we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 70, I know that you'll be excited about this passage that we're going to be looking at at this morning. As uh, if you haven't made it there yet, when you get there, I'll hear some laughs, I think, as you turn and open up to that portion of the book. Uh, Let us begin with prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be gathered this morning as your people. We have gathered today, Lord, to celebrate you and to worship you. We have gathered today to proclaim your goodness, to sing from the depths of our souls to you. And Lord, we have done that. And now we come seeking to dine upon your word and to be instructed. And so I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and open our our minds to comprehend the truth of, of your word and And open our hearts, Father, to love the truth of your word, that we would apply it to our lives and that we would live for your glory. And Lord, that you would encourage us today to live faithfully following after you from your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The passage is chapter 2, verses 1 through 70, and we will not read the entire passage this morning. Uh, but I want to begin with verses 1 and 2, and then we'll kind of skip toward, uh, toward the end. And then during the message, we'll highlight some of the significant themes or things that flow out of, uh, out of the, uh, the genealogy, okay? So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Now these are the people of the province that came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon. And returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel then follow from verses 3 all the way really through the end of the chapter where we get to uh, maybe verses 66 and it kind of shows us there are 67 and it shows us uh, even their animals that had been numbered along with them. But back up to verse 59. Now these are those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harasha, uh, or Tel Harsha, Kerub, Adam, and Emer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. So the sons of Delaiah and the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, uh, numbers 652. And then verse 61, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until the priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. 
the whole assembly numbered 42,360. And then skip to verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold dramicas, 5,000 silver minas, and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, you're probably thinking, what in the world? (laughs) I'm lost at this point. Let me give you a a brief recap of where we've come from, where the book of Isaiah, of of Ezra is in the timeline of, of the history of the people of God. The story of Ezra is one of redemption. The people of Judah had been exiled under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In 587, they had taken the people of Israel and they had brought them back captive to the province or the place of Babylonia. And the people of Israel sat there until about 539 B.C. when King Cyrus came in, the Persian king. He came in and he defeated Babylon and took control over Babylon again. So God, exercising his sovereign control, raised up a deliverer in the name of this king called Cyrus. In fact, chapter 1 details how God had stirred the spirit of this king of Persia, Cyrus. And then we walked through last week and saw all of the prophecies throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the work that God was doing in in the whole scheme of the nations. And so King Cyrus issued a proclamation upon defeating, of ba- defeating Babylon. He issues this proclamation and says that they are going to send all of Israel, all of the, the Jews back to Jerusalem and to Judah so that they would rebuild the temple that was there in Jerusalem. And so that was chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And so last week we noted in chapter 1 that, that God works on a global scale. As we see God orchestrating the nations in order to accomplish His purpose and and do His work within the nations and for the people of God. We see Him orchestrating and bringing Cyrus in to capture and to defeat Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But before that we saw God take Babylon, take Nebuchadnezzar and come and defeat Judah and bring them into captivity because they had, uh, they had fallen away from God and they had begun to serve false gods and they had taken their eyes off of following Him and began walking in their own way and following their own way. So we saw that God sovereignly orchestrated the return of His people when He brings Cyrus to defeat Babylon and He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to act. And he had prepared a vessel in Cyrus, one that he would use in order to accomplish his work. And he had preserved the remnant of his people. We see that in chapter 1 as well in verses 4, 3 and 4, how how God had, had really set apart this remnant of his people. And he would use his people and the leaders of his people to lead them back into the land he had promised them, into the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and then we saw that God had also provided for the work of the task that, was he, that he was calling his people to do. He had provided, and then that 
It was almost like a second exodus as the people were leaving, heading back to Jerusalem. The, the people that were there uh, in, the, in the city around them were giving to the people, who, the exiles who were heading back to Jerusalem. And as they were giving to them, they were providing for everything they needed in order to go and to begin work and rebuild the temple. And they also preserved, God also preserved those things which are necessary for his people to worship him. In that he preserved all of, or not all, but most of the vessels that were in the temple where his people would go to worship him. They had been carried by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon and put into the temple. And so we have the account of those being returned to the people in Ezra chapter 1. But we also know that not only does God work on a global scale as he's orchestrating the nations and doing all of these things to accomplish his purpose. God is also at work on an individual scale. We saw that with the fathers of the households being stirred up, their spirit being stirred up in verse 5. It says, the head of those fathers' households of Judah in chapter 1, and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And so the Lord had stirred the spirit of Cyrus the king, but then he had also stirred the spirit of those individual leaders. He had stirred the spirit of those men, of those families, of the priests and the Levites. And what God was doing in stirring their spirit is he was awakening his people to action and and putting them into motion. He was setting them on a course and he was delivering them from the captivity and the exile that they had been in. But there's more to the story than just God working on the global level and our scale and God working on the individual scale. In chapter 2, we get, we get to the most exciting portion of the text in Ezra, right? He's working on the individual scale, but he's working in the covenant community. And so today I want us to see how God works in his covenant community. He always has worked in his covenant community. And so in chapter 2, we have the details of the people of God leaving from exile in Babylon, heading back to Jerusalem. These are the people of the covenant community who are returning so they can begin rebuilding the temple of God and begin worshiping God. And this is really the heart of God that His people would be free to come before Him and to worship Him. For a Western culture, as we look at this passage and we begin to view this passage, it focuses more on a family than it does on individualism. And so for us, it's difficult and maybe even a little bit labor intensive as we walk through a passage like this to see how significant a passage like this is. But the genealogy tells a story. And the story that the genealogy here in Ezra chapter 2 is telling is it's connecting the people of the exile with the people of God before the exile. And it shows that these are, in fact, the covenant people of God. And that was very significant for those who were in exile because they had been doubting, is our God really a God who can beat and defeat the Babylonians? Are, is our God one that can really control and, and work on the nations? Are, are the prophecies true of Isaiah and, and of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel? Are, are these things that we have celebrated and, and held in our culture, are these things true? I mean, can we really count on this God? Or is their God bigger than our God? 
These are the things that are wrestling around in their mind. And so this is significant for the people of God, for the covenant community of God to be able to to hone in and focus in on who they are, where their lineage has come from. And so the first thing I want us to look at this morning is I want us to answer the question, who is the covenant community of God? Who is the covenant community of God? And to answer that question, quite simply, we would say that the covenant community of God is Israel. God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, Israel. They were the children of Abraham who were led out of slavery in Egypt and they journeyed to the promised land. These are all the stories we read about in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness to bring them through the desert and to see them as they are through the wilderness and to see them enter into the promised land and the the stories we read about the change in leadership and and Moses handing it off and, and Joshua taking them into the promised land. In Genesis chapter 13 verses 14 through 17... The author says, or Moses says, promised the, 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 that there was the promise to bless Abraham and recounts for us in Genesis 13, 14 through 17 that God promises to bless Abraham through making his descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so as he promises to bless Abraham and do that, we, we see as we walk through the Old Testament narrative that the clan is there, Abraham, Abram's clan. He, they, they are there in Egypt and then they begin to flourish and they, they begin to grow. And it's through the promised seed of Isaac that God births this nation of Israel and, and they begin to grow exponentially. And as they're there in Egypt, they are under domination and persecution they're under hard labor from the Egyptians and then God raises up one who would serve to deliver them named Moses right and Moses brings them out and as they're in the wilderness and Moses is leading them Moses receives the ten commandments from God and what were those ten commandments from God they they were instructions for God's people on how to live out their life in service to him and how to worship him God desires that his people would keep him in the forefront of their life. That their lives would be built around serving him and and that our lives would be built around worshiping and serving him. And so as God gives Moses these Ten Commandments, the people begin to learn how they are to live for him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I wanted to highlight for us part of this covenant And the significance of this covenant in chapter seven, verse seven, it says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest of all people speaking to the nation of Israel. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep him and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them and he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. God takes serious that his people would walk in obedience and follow him. 
And these Israelites that are leaving exile, going back to Jerusalem, they, they know this. And so really the question, I think, that if we understand then who the covenant people are, the promised people of Israel, the chosen nation that God has chosen, not because they were mighty in number, but because He set His love upon them. And then we look here in Ezra chapter 2, and we see in this post-exile time when they're heading back to Jerusalem, we see a community who is perhaps struggling but wanting to make certain that they, they celebrate their God and that they are the, the new covenant, are the, the renewed covenant people. So why is the genealogy so important? The reason the genealogy is so important is because it's the history of this people of God. The people who are descendants of the families named in these lists are reminded that they belong to a select community. They belong to a covenant community. The people of Israel whom Yahweh has chosen as his own people. And so the fact that they are the covenant people of God teaches us something about God's character. It teaches that he doesn't break his covenant. It teaches that God is faithful and that he keeps his covenant. That he always keeps his word and he always brings his word to pass. God always works to accomplish the salvation of His people. And get this, even while in exile, even during the exile, in the times of testing, God is about accomplishing the salvation of His people. And so as we have the the blessed privilege to to be able to look back over history and see how God has worked and orchestrated, we can celebrate the bigness of God. We can celebrate the sovereign hand of God and the immense power of God that He is able to control in all nations. That there's nothing that slips by Him. He, he has control over all nations. And then we see here in this covenant people that God is still about accomplishing His purpose. He hasn't forgotten about them in their 70 years in exile. He has remembered them and He has brought them or is bringing them back to Jerusalem. One way we really see this work This principle, this truth, work out and flesh out in the New Testament is in the book of James, as we recently walked through James, where James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what's going on here for the people of God? They're being they're walking through a time of testing and refinement. And in the midst of it, God is preserving a remnant. He's purging His people and He's preserving a remnant and He's bringing them back from captivity. He's delivering them. And then Philippians 1.6 also says, and I'm sure of this, Paul says that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Christ Jesus. Listen, God is always at work accomplishing His purpose Always at work, saving his people, doing a work of salvation. Paul also encourages us in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. 
For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what we see here is that God is the one leading his covenant people, his covenant community. He has stirred up the hearts. He stirred up the heart of, 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 of Cyrus to, to lead the people out. And he stirred up the hearts of the people to take a step of faith and, and begin walking. But as we look a little bit more intently into the genealogy here, there are at least two reasons for including the genealogy in the text of Ezra. Ezra doesn't focus on the drama of the trip, correct? I mean, we look through here, and we don't have the story recounted for us of the struggles that they, uh, that they walked through as they made this trek back to Jerusalem. Basically, we just have a list here of all the people that were part of this covenant community. And so what we learn, one of the things that we learn here, or one of the reasons that we see this uh, genealogy included is the reestablishment of the covenant community. There's a reestablishment of the covenant community, and it's significant for these people of God. In reestablishing the covenant community, they're reestablishing the religious uh, ramifications or the, re- the religious um, structure of the community and then they're also dealing with legal matters to claims to property and things like that and so the structure is set out so in verses 3 through 35 there's simply the lay people that are part of the people of God and they are part of the group that's that's heading back and then verses 36 through 39 we see the priest the sons of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua in verse 36 and he goes on to list uh, the the priests that are there and the priest must be descendants of Aaron. And so these are significant things that they're putting in place in this genealogy, genealogy, identifying who the priests are, identifying who the people of God are, because they, they carry out a specific function in the worship of God's people. And so the priests, they were responsible for the altar sacrifice. And if you look in Exodus 28 and 29, you see the great detail of their role as being described there in Exodus 28 and 29, what they would do daily and part of their, their worship and leading, leading the people of God to worship God. In verse 40, we see the Levites, and in 41 and 42, they're the singers and uh, the sons of the gatekeepers. And these singers and sons of the gatekeepers, they were probably taken from families or from people who were captured during, uh, during campaigns, military campaigns, uh, and then they were probably apportioned to, to special tasks by David, by King David. Verses 43 through 58, the other temple servants, they were sons of Solomon and, and the Nethanim. And these were those who were also conquered by war, but had most likely adopted the covenant sign for the people, so they were able to be part of the people of God. And that covenant sign was a sign of circumcision. And so as we read through, the, as you read through the genealogy and see these divisions as they're set up, these divisions are significant for the religious establishment and the temple worship. The people were listed according to family and according to their locations. 
And so we can imagine as all these people, these 40,000 plus people come returning to the city and they have their names and they have their genealogies and they know their territories. They're all headed back to their specific territories. And so this provides a record for all those as they're going back. But it's not all just religiosity and, uh, and, and, and legal, uh, legal ramifications here. There's, there's more to it than that. In the Jewish culture, a name was a, it was a weighty thing. A person's ancestry was a weighty thing. Where they had come from, their, their ancestors, it, it said much about who they were. Their character was often shaped by their background, their upbringing, their ancestors. We don't have that connection in our culture today. Sure, it goes back maybe one generation or maybe two. And, and then if you live in a small community, you might see that. Well, well, he's a tailor and we know his grandpa. We know his relatives. And maybe they were honest or maybe they were dishonest. And uh, in fact, we were, we were talking one day and, uh, at one of our elders' lunches. And uh, I think it was Mr. Al. We were talking about a, a specific place in Mississippi and... I, well, I told him who my relatives were, uh, the Sullivan side, and that was on my, my mom and my grandmother. Uh, my grandfather was a Sullivan. And, uh, and so anyway, we kind of got to talking, and, and uh, one thing led to another and kind of identified a specific area, and uh, my relatives were known for not being so kind in that area. They were, they were known for their roughness, and they were known for their, uh, their, their real, uh, I guess, being... Um, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, renegades and running from the law, not being law-abiding citizens. A point is simply the opposite, <laughs> that people are known by their ancestry, people are known by their family lineage, and especially in this culture, it's significant. And so it was a common thought in Jewish culture that, and Jewish families that, that the ancestry lived on through an individual And so what's important about this genealogy then? What's important is it's going to exclude anyone who is not part of the people of God. It's going to exclude those who do not have their name among the ancestry. It's going to exclude those who want to come into the community but can't because they're not part of the people of God. And it's going to put a barrier there so that that just anybody can't cross over into the covenant community of the people of God. And this is significant for the covenant community. It's significant for them as they move back into the land. It's significant for them as they're reestablishing themselves in the land and they're guarding against all that would seek to lead them astray and away from God. And so it's significant. Even though we look at it and sometimes struggle to to make our way through it and to walk through it, it's significant. But there's a second reason, I think, for the genealogy, and perhaps there are many more reasons, but these are at least two reasons why the genealogy is here in Ezra. The second reason is this, that it shows the authenticity of the covenant community. It shows the authenticity of the covenant community. That is, to be a member of the covenant community was to be a participant in the blessings of God and to be a participant in the people of God and to come with God, uh, to come with the people and worship God. And so verses 1 and 2 begin by telling us that. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and carried away to Babylon. And they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. And then it shows us in verse 2, And these came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Siriah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, Banah. And then if you look in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 7, there's a, a twelfth name that's added to the list. That twelfth name is Nahamani. Uh, the, the point here is this is, a, this is a recovering of the twelve tribes of Israel as the people are going back into the land of Judah, into Jerusalem to rebuild the church. And it shows, it shows completeness of the restoration of God's remnant as his people goes back, go back. And so the genealogy establishes the purity of the covenant people. It establishes the the purity of their covenant with God and living out, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in living out their loyalty to God through obedience and through faithfulness. The same call which the people of God today are to walk in, right? To live our lives in purity before God and to walk with Him in holiness. For God's Word tells us even in 1 Peter 1.16 that you are to be holy because why? I am holy. God desires that His people would walk in holiness And so they were making certain that everyone who was part of the returned community and everyone who claimed to be the people of God were, in fact, the people of God. You see how this plays out is in verse 61. The priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, And he was called by their name. And verse 62 says, These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. You see, the point is that it protected the priesthood from someone coming in and offering profane worship before God. It protected the people of God from someone coming in and offering profane worship before God. But I I think it's almost impossible to stress the significance that the community placed upon this issue. But for a community, this community, as they place this this stress upon keeping purity, uh, keeping purity at the forefront, they wanted to make certain that no one would come in and bring outside influences that would distract them and, and deter them from worshiping God. One commentator writes, but for a community whose power did not consist in armies, but in the knowledge and service of God, it was impossible to be too careful in ascertaining who truly stood with that community. So the first returning Jews are determined to keep the community pure as Israel enters upon this new phase with new opportunities to know the blessing of God. The significance of the priests, we can see it in Exodus chapter 30, verse 8, and what the priests were were to do. It says in Exodus 38, And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it in the year throughout your generations. It is 
most holy to the Lord. And then according to Numbers 1640, to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. You see, the Lord knows, the Lord knows that as his people are coming before him to worship him, are the exiles, excuse me, the exiles know that as the people of God come, as they come to worship God, that it's a serious matter. They know that it's a weighty matter when they come before God. And so as they come back into the land, they want to make certain that they are coming back and they are worshiping God in accordance with what he has prescribed and called them to do. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You see, the work of God among His covenant people is a work of covenant faithfulness. That is, that God is faithful to carry out His word, and he also calls his people to live faithfully according to, accordingly to carry out his word. You see, God calls his people to live faithfully and he acts in a way that is faithful. And God desires that his people would be in a place to be able to worship him. Today, church, as we gather this morning... We gather to worship the Lord. We gather to sing of His praise and to celebrate His covenant faithfulness to us as well. We see the way that His covenant faithfulness plays out in the life of these exiles as they're brought back in to Jerusalem. And then this morning we have a very real picture of God's covenant faithfulness to the church today. We, the church today, are recipients of the new covenant through the faithful work of God. God is the same God today who is here this morning with us to gather and worship Him as He was then when the exiles are returning and they're going and looking forward to being there in the temple and worshiping God. He is the same God today as He was yesterday and He will be the same God tomorrow. And the point is that as we gather this morning, we have one who has made a covenant with his people. And this is a new covenant that God has made. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus, when he's there with the disciples after the Lord's Supper, or as they're finishing the Lord's Supper in the last cup, he says to them, and likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus takes the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples, and he uses it to speak of the work that he was about to accomplish on the cross for the redemption of his people. His blood will be poured out as a sign of the new covenant. And the church today is a people. We are the people of covenant. We are the the new covenant community that has been established by the blood of Christ. And as God has led his people and delivered them from exile in the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has delivered all those who profess faith in Christ, trust in Christ, and walk with Christ by the new covenant of the blood. 
And so here's what I'd like to try to do. I'd like to just try to, to close up this morning and, and tie these themes together for us as we prepare our hearts to, to partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. When it comes to membership in the covenant community, we see the strict guidelines and the emphasis that the Israelites put in the place of making certain that they knew who the membership was and could trace back those who were members of the covenant community. And I I just want to say that as a membership of covenant community, we want to make certain, we want to make certain that we are able to, uh, to encourage and to help all those who come to faith in Christ join and unite with the covenant community in Christ. And as a church, we have a responsibility to make sure that we encourage and we walk with people as they walk through this time of joining up and being part of the covenant community of Christ. In the New Testament, we call this church membership. But maybe we need to ask another question. What does it mean to be a member of the covenant community of Christ. What does it truly mean to be a member of this covenant community? One of the things we see that is in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're, we're encouraged to be members of the covenant community of Christ. So, so what does it mean to be a member of the covenant community of Christ? First off, it means that I must admit that I'm a sinner before God. It means that I must admit that I have offended God, I have wronged God, and before God, I'm a sinner, and it means that I must repent of my sin and ask for, ask is almost too soft of the word, and beg perhaps is better, but but ask God for forgiveness. Come before Him as one who is broken and saying, God, forgive me of my sin, recognizing that we have offended holy God with our sin. But not only are we to admit our sin and repent of our sin, we must believe that Jesus Christ died to satisfy God's wrath against my sin. This is very personal, that I would believe that God himself has sent Jesus Christ and Christ has died to satisfy the wrath of God that would be poured out upon my sin and that Jesus became the substitute in my place for me, and that He, because of His substitute, has saved my life. He has saved me by giving His life. And then we must surrender. We must surrender to Jesus Christ. That's what it means ultimately to be a member of the covenant community in Christ. It means to surrender our life to Jesus Christ. We begin with confession that we have sinned and offended holy God. And until we come to that place where we confess that we have, a, we have offended Him and we have sinned against Him, then let me tell you, if you've never done that, then you don't know Jesus Christ because you must repent and believe you must repent of sin in order to know the need for the Savior. We must understand the the gravity of our sin. And so we admit that we're a sinner. We seek repentance. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that He has become the substitute in my place. And then we surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what it means to be a covenant member of the community of Christ. 
And before one can join any church, that must happen in his or her life. And so as church membership, as this covenant community, covenant community of Christ fleshes itself out, it, it must begin there with knowing Jesus Christ and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as I mentioned a moment ago, as as we prepare to partake the Lord's Supper, you don't have to be a member of Cross Point to partake the Lord's Supper. But you do have to be a member of the kingdom of God. We urge you, we encourage you that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let me tie the second thing in. The church, the, the people of Israel, they were concerned with their purity before God. They wanted to make sure that everything in their life was, was in line with God's command for how they would worship Him. And let me challenge us, church, that it ought to be no different for us as we approach this table this morning. As this is the height of what Christ has done in His sacrificial love for His bride in laying down His life and making His body the substitutionary atonement for all those who would follow Him, would profess faith in Him. Believe as he spilled his blood and gave up his body to death. As we eat this morning, we will celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he died for the sins of mankind, he was risen so that we might have hope and life eternally. And so as we approach the table this morning, it is of utmost importance that you and I would would evaluate our own hearts and our own lives before the Lord God. That we would make certain, because He knows that we in our own lives are pure before Him, seeking Him and asking for His forgiveness as we approach the table, so that as we eat, we don't eat and drink condemnation upon ourselves. When we come to the Lord's table, it's a way of leveling us. It's a way of, of us all living confessional lives. Because we can't eat of the Lord's Supper when we're harboring sin in our heart. Sin against one another or sin against God. We must come before God and confess our sin before Him. And so as we consider membership in the big C church, the body of Christ, or we consider and we consider our purity before God, as we approach the table, I want to just give one more thought here before we partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not united with a church body in church membership, and you're not walking together in unity with a local congregational body, as a believer in Christ, I want to challenge you to consider that. Consider that step of uniting your, your faith with other believers and joining together as, uh, as members of one body, as members of the body of Christ, but as members with a local congregation to plug in and to serve alongside of one another. This morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to give us some time to spend in prayer, to meditate, to evaluate our own hearts before the Lord. I want to give us some time to 
um, to consider if there's something in our life that needs to be purified and confessed before the Lord. So I'm going to I'm going to just we're going to pause here for a time of silence and let you pray and prepare your heart and your mind as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, And then I will say a prayer and, and close our time out. Okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are with us. We know that you never leave us. You don't forsake us. Though there are times that we forsake you. There are times that we get distracted. There are times that we don't make you the first priority in our lives. We seek your forgiveness for that, Father. And Lord, we ask this morning as we come to celebrate the bread and the cup. Oh, Father, that you would you would cleanse us and this would be a time of great celebration and great worship as we remember and and reflect upon what you have done. But we also rejoice in the hope of eternity. Thank you, Father, for our salvation. Thank you, God, for how you love us and you care deeply for us. And now, Lord, we pray that as we. We turn our hearts to this time that, Lord, you would encourage us. Lord, that we would be, uh, our spirit would be lifted, God. That our spirits would be uh, stirred even to serve you as the people that we even read of in Ezra. That we would be stirred to walk with you, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.